It's always nice when you're assured that you will have something fun for us. It's a good way to start the day. Yeah, no pressure. No pressure. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4 this morning. We are starting the next chapter in our journey through the letter of Ephesians. And up until this point, we have been looking at some of the knowledge that we need as a church in order to be a healthy church. Paul has been looking at the salvation that we have been given through Christ. He has looked at how we have been called in to the body of Christ and made a family. He has looked at the blessings of such. He has looked at where we get our strength and how we are to be filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. But now in chapter 4, he is going to turn our attention a little bit to some of the practicality of all of this. He's going to turn our attention to how are we to do this? How are to, what are the marks of a healthy church? What, what does a healthy church do? Not just what a healthy church knows. And if we're completely honest as a church this morning and as individuals this morning, my guess would be that most of us have a great knowledge Many of us here, though not all of us, have been in church for a long time. We have been through Sunday school. We know a lot. That is not generally our problem. Our problem is that we don't act upon what we know. We don't accomplish what we have been told. And so, Paul changes our focus this morning just a little bit. To say, okay, we have talked together about these things. Now, how do they get done? And so we're going to look at that with him this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hopefully you found it. So if you would stand with me so that we may read that together this morning. Chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we, we are thankful. We are thankful for this week and thankful for the things that it has brought. We are thankful for the opportunity to gather together as the body. We are thankful that you have saved us, many of us, and called us into this great family that you have formed through your own power and through your own grace. Father, I ask this morning, Lord, we have much to digest, much to look at in this passage. And I pray that you would help us, though, not to get distracted and not to get Uh, caught up in one part or another but lord that we would hear exactly what you would have us to hear or that it would change us that it would prepare us that it would equip us to do the ministry that you have set before us that it would make us into the church that you would desire us to be father we pray this in your name amen thank you. you may be seated Before we dig too far into Ephesians chapter 4, I want to take a moment to look at what I am calling a small difficulty. It is a small difficulty in terms of how we understand the passage and specifically how we understand three verses. The, the difficulty lies in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 8 through 10 and I'm just going to read those very quickly it says therefore it says it being the Old Testament when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things Now, this is an interesting uh, three verses for us this morning because they create somewhat of a problem. But I believe that the word allows itself to be discovered and and understood well and that it never causes confusion. And so I wanted to take just a moment before we looked at the totality of the passage for us to take a moment and, and really study this these three verses so that we may understand them so they may not distract us from what Paul is trying to say here in verses 1 through 16. So what is the small difficulty? Well, first, we have a question of giving or receiving. We have a question of giving or receiving. You see, Paul there in verse 8 is quoting Psalms 68, 18. He is quoting Psalms 68, 18. In fact, you may have a note about that at the bottom of your page. So when he says, when he ascended on on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts of men, that is a quote. And it is almost an exact quote. However, Paul changes the verb in the second part of that where it says, and he gave gifts. In the psalm, it says he receives gifts. And so we have this issue. Why has Paul changed the Old Testament? 
that that should bother you. It should it should be like, wait a minute, we we shouldn't change the word. That that shouldn't happen. Paul Paul doesn't even know scripture. Paul can't even quote out of it correctly. I thought he was supposed to be this great apostle. And it, it should should bother you. But the reality is rather simple when we begin to study it. The reality is is that the our answer is that he, Jesus, receives for our benefit. He receives for our benefit. There in Psalms, the writer of the psalm is talking about a king who has been victorious over his enemies and is returning to his throne and is ascending to it and that in doing so, he is receiving gifts, he is receiving from men, from his enemies really, Gifts, spoils of war, so to speak. But the Hebrew verb there is interesting because the Hebrew verb there has a meaning that is similar to what we mean when we say someone fetches something. Okay? When we say someone is going to fetch something, we understand that they are going somewhere else to pick something else, pick something up to receive something so that then they can return to either give it to someone else or to have it be used, all right? So when we tell a dog to fetch, we don't expect the dog to hold on to the ball, right? He's to return it to us and give it back to us. It's not for him to keep, though if you have a dog like some, that's exactly what's going to happen, but then he's breaking the command. This verb in Hebrew has the same meaning. It means for one to receive so that then they may give away. And it is used such in other parts of the Old Testament in just that fashion. So what Paul is referring to when he changes, uh, in our English version, when he changes it from receive to give, it is not uh, changing, so to speak, the, the meaning of the passage, but rather it is reminding us of the fullness of the passage. Jesus is receiving here as victor gifts, but then he turns around and gives those gifts back to those who trust him, back to us as believers. So that solves our first problem. It's not that he, Paul is changing the word of God. It's not that he is misquoting the word of God, but he is rather helping us to understand it in its fullness. Second, we see Another small difficulty in the question of descending to where. It's kind of a clunky way that I've uh, put that question together. But in the rest of the passage, Paul begins to talk about in a parenthetical section that because Jesus ascended, then it means he also must have descended. But where did he descend? Well, there are three uh, different ways that people look at this. And it's either earth or it's Sheol. Okay? But let me explain to you the three different views that we see here among scholars and among those that are smarter than I am. All right. First, we see that the po- it could be the possibility, and this is the way it is translated in the ESV um, and maybe translated in yours as well, that when he talks about descending, when Paul talks of Christ descending, what he is talking about is the incarnation. It's God becoming flesh. All right. So God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, And then he lived his life, completed his mission in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. And then the captives that are spoken of are you and I. 
All right, that's one way to look at the descension. Another way to look at it, because your translation may be different, your translation may say that he went into the depths of the earth. All right, and that's another way that we can translate the Greek here that Paul is talking about. In the second way to view it, we see Paul describing Christ's death and burial. So into the depths of the earth would be talking then about Christ being buried. All right, so he came to earth, he descended out of heaven, he became flesh for us so that he may live a perfect life, so he may die on the cross, and then he is buried into the depths of the earth from which he would ascend, all right? And again there, the captives would be us. The third way is a little bit different, and it's a little bit more controversial, but there are plenty of guys that that ascribe to this, and so it is fair for you to, to hear this and to understand what they're talking about. The third thing that he, they would say is that when Paul talks about into the depths of the earth, he is talking about, about a place called Sheol. And Sheol was an Old Testament location that is talked about throughout the Old Testament, and it was the place of the dead. Both the righteous and the unrighteous would go there. And in many places, it's described like a city with gates and walls, and, but there is a divide there where the righteous would be on one side of the city and the unrighteous would be on the other city and there would be no crossing over. If you want to see a picture of that, look for the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man, where the rich man is unrighteous, they go to the place of the dead and he calls out to Abraham for Abraham to cross over and give him a drop of water. Abraham says, even if I wanted to, we couldn't, we're separated. All right, but they're in the same city. And so the idea is that all the dead would go there because the Messiah had not yet come yet. The Messiah had not yet arrived, and so there was no way for them to fully get into heaven, and so they went to this place, the righteous went to this place of rest, while the unrighteous went to the place of torment in the same place, in the same city, okay? And so this theory, this look at this verse would say this. It would say that when Christ died, he descended into the the depths of the earth to this place called Sheol. He went, ripped the gates off. He went into the righteous part of the city and set free the Old Testament faithful who were there. And they are the captives that Paul is talking about as Jesus ascends back to heaven. All right. You see support for this in the book of first Peter. All right. And so That is the third view. I want to be very careful here, though, to help you to see something in each of these three. Because I I don't know that this is a point where we should split the church over which one of these three you choose to believe in. But I want you to see one thing among all three of these. And this is something that all scholars agree on um, if if they hold to one of these three. And really that we should hold on to as well is that Christ did not descend into what we would consider hell to suffer upon his death. That view, that view holds on to the idea that the cross was not sufficient. That Christ's death and his his suffering upon the cross, both spiritually as as God poured out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross and physically as he was nailed to the cross, that that was not sufficient and that he must have further suffering. Brothers and sisters, we look at the New Testament and we see over and over again, the cross was sufficient. The cross did it all. Jesus proclaims upon the cross before his last breath, it is finished. His work is done. 
And so no matter which of these three uh, explanations you see for the dissension, hold on to the truth that the cross was sufficient to pay for your sin and my sin alike. Whether you believe that Christ went into the depths of the earth to Sheol to set free the old captive saints or not, he paid it all on the cross. He paid it all on the cross. And I also want us to see here that in this passage, the purpose of Paul saying this is to remind us that no matter about the dissension, Christ rises in victory. He rises in victory. This is why he receives gifts and now is able to give gifts back to us because Christ has defeated Satan. Christ has defeated death and now he gives hope to us. And so no matter how you choose to look at this passage, whether you look at it as the way it's translated in ESV, that he descended to earth, or whether you, like me, um, say that he, he is talking of the burial here, or whether you would like to say, um, and, and there is some more evidence for it, that he descended into Sheol to, to release the captives from the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament from that place, and take them into paradise. Whatever you would like to say, understand this. The cross was sufficient and Christ was victorious. Those are the points that Paul is wanting us to see here. All right. So that that concludes our little look at the difficulty of the passage. Uh, And I hope that uh, that puts your mind at rest. I know this week when I was looking at it, I, uh, I texted a friend of mine and said, hey, what do you do with Ephesians 4, 8 through 10? And he said, don't preach that passage. And I said, I, I don't think that that's quite right either. And he said, makes life easier, though. And so uh, I hope, though, that, that that helps you. I hope that it answers some questions. I know that the, for me, I, ha- I had many more questions. And if you would like to discuss it more, then I would love to talk to you. But I don't want us to get distracted this morning too long by that section because that is a support for what Paul is saying in the whole passage. It is not the purpose of the whole passage for us to look at just those three verses. So let's back up then to verse 1 and let's get a look at what Paul is saying here in a totality, in a a grand scheme, and and not look so much more at that that small issue. Paul is going back here in chapter 4 to what he said in chapter 2. In chapter 2, you'll remember that that Paul reminds us that we are one. Paul reminds us that we are one, that we have unity in salvation. He reminds us that we are no longer Gentiles and Jews, but now we have, through the gospel, been united into one people. And Paul returns to that. Paul returns to that idea here in chapter 4. Specifically, if you'll jump down with me, we'll come back to some other things here. But specifically, he says there in verse 4, verse 4, that there is one body, one spirit, just as we were called to one hope that belongs to our call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Paul reminds us here, we the church are one. Whether you want to say that we are one family, or whether you want to say that we are one body, 
or whether you want to say that we are one building, as he alludes to earlier in the letter, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use, Paul wants to make it clear that you and I belong to something larger than ourselves. That we belong to something larger than ourselves. And as we have seen in the previous, in, in chapter 3, that we have a common salvation and a common purpose Paul goes on after two to say, this is why you have been brought together as one. And so the natural, uh, the natural thing to grasp from that is that if we work against each other, that it harms the body. That if we are to forget that we are one body, if we forget that we have one salvation, that then we harm ourselves as a church and we harm ourselves as individuals individuals when we have dissension when we work against each other and against the church but how do we do this we've talked a lot about unity we talked about it in chapter two we've talked about it a lot during my time here as pastor how do we how do we do this paul what makes this happen how do we show this is the question i have here we'll back up to verse one he says, I, therefore, a prisoner, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A reminder that we have one calling. And then he tells us how to do it. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul says, you want to be unified? You want to be one church, accomplishing the purpose of God? You want to be a healthy church that is producing disciples, that sees the baptismal waters stirred, that sees people come to know faith? Do you want to be a church that grows together into maturity? Then treat each other this way. Treat each other with humility. Remembering that you are not all that in a bag of chips. Remember to treat each other with gentleness. Your version may use the word meekness. Meekness and weakness, by the way, are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. When I think of, when I think of gentleness and meekness, when I hear those two words described in the Bible, what always comes to my mind is my uncle. My uncle, uh, at what you might say the height of his power, um, he's he's been sick for the last couple of years, but when my uncle was in shape, if you want to call it that, he was six foot four and weighed five hundred pounds. Don't know if you'd call that in shape, but he was he was a powerful man, powerful. I have seen him do things that no human being should be able to do, and when people ask me my last name in Rawls County, especially, and they say. Are you related, or who are you related to? I say, oh, I'm Kenny's nephew, and they laugh at me. I say, you don't see the family resemblance? And they're like, no. But he is, he is an incredibly strong man. To the point where we've actually uttered the statement, oh, I was going to get the tractor for that, but good job. Well done. I say that to say this. When I think of gentleness and meekness, I think of him because though he is powerful, though he is strong, though he is huge, 
you have never seen a man be more gentle. When you watch him hold a baby and play with a young child, this huge, six foot four, 500 pound man playing with a child, it's meekness. He could have crushed me when I was a child. And yet, he is able to control his power. When you watch him dance, that's right, dance. And if you want to hear stories, go to the Lions Club, Lions Hall in New London, and ask people who the best dancer in Rawls County is, and many of them will tell you it's the great big guy standing in the corner. He had grace, gentleness, meekness. He never, never that I ever saw used his size on purpose to intimidate. Now, some people, you just walk up to a person that big and they don't have to try. You're intimidated. But he never did it on purpose. He talked calmly and coolly. Not always with the best language, but calmly and coolly. That is gentleness and meekness. All of us possess some form of power. All of us have a tongue that is sharp, that can be a weapon. All of us have something that we can pull on each other. And if you're, if I understand small churches well, which I grew up in one that at the time was small, and I grew up in New London, we all know each other's past, or at least we think we do. And we all could easily pull something out and say, yeah, but what about this? We all have some form of power, whether it's physical strength, or whether it's a memory, or whether it's a sharp tongue. Paul says, when you deal with one another, do it in gentleness. Do it in meekness, not using your power, not abusing your power over someone else. That is how we come together. We do it with humility, we do it with gentleness, we do it with patience and bearing with one another kind of like what we talked about with the children's sermon this morning. It's easy to wash the foot of someone we like. It's easy to wash the foot of someone that's clean. It is a completely different thing to wash the foot of someone who annoys us. Not that Caden annoys me. It's a completely different thing. And there are probably people in this congregation, people in this body, who annoy the snot out of you. And guess what? you probably know the snot out of them. Paul says, bear with one another. Be patient with one another. It's not easy. It's not easy, this thing that he is asking us to do. It's not easy to be patient with one another. It's not easy to bear with one another. He tells us, not only that, But he tells us that we should be eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We should rush towards it. Not desiring dissension. Not desiring that we always be right. Not desiring that we always get our way. But rather we should be quick to look for unity. This doesn't mean that we're always going to agree on everything doesn't mean we can't have discussions about things that we disagree on. Susie Gwynn and I love one another deeply. She is a wonderful woman. Her and I have very differing views on the book of Revelation. Very differing. We have those discussions sometimes. And we walk away with them saying, you're still wrong. 
but we rush towards unity. We rush towards unity. We rush to say that we were saved by the same Christ, by the same blood, by the same resurrection. And we work together to complete the task that he has been set before us. And someday we will probably stand before Christ and he will tell us that we were both wrong. Maybe not. In the same way, you and I can have discussions. We can disagree about the color of the carpet. We can disagree about the way that we do ministry. We can disagree about things, but we approach those things in humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to find common ground so that we may accomplish the purpose of the kingdom. The world looks at that and they don't understand it. And they shouldn't because this is from Christ. This kind of unity, this kind of bond does not happen in the world. It happens only through the salvation and through the grace that we have been given. Like I said, it's not easy. It's difficult. Which is why we see verse 7. It's interesting here that Paul is talking about unity and he is talking about that we have one family, that we are one body, one spirit, with one call, with one Lord, all these great things. And then verse 7 starts with a but. Does that strike you? Like all these great things and he says, but. It's like, wait, why, why do we need a but there? Why, why do we need that, that particular conjunction? Paul knows this isn't easy. This isn't easy to accomplish this thing that we call unity. It isn't easy to bear with one another all the time. It isn't easy to be patient with one another all the time. It isn't easy to love each other. It isn't easy to be humble and meek all the time. So Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. By the way, what is Christ's ultimate gift? It is our salvation. What is the measure of that? It is infinity. It is great. It is broad. And he says that we have been given grace to accomplish the unity that he calls us to according to the measure of our salvation. In other words, it is able to be done through him. We just have to hold on to it. He gives gifts. And this takes us into where he talks about in verse 8 that he gives gifts because he is the victor. He is able to accomplish this for us because he is the one that ascends on high. He is the great one who has already defeated death and Satan and the enemy. He is the one who has the right to help us through this. So what are these gifts? Well, he says that we are equipped for a purpose. We are equipped for a purpose. If you'll skip over with me, we're going to skip past the next little section just and we'll come back to it, I promise. But he says there that we have each part, in verse 16, that we are a whole body joined together by every joint which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow and builds itself up in love. We have been equipped, the church has been equipped with the parts that it needs to grow and to accomplish the purpose of unity to accomplish the purpose of the gospel. Been equipped with each part. The body is made up of the parts it needs. You ever notice that? Like, have you ever thought to yourself, man, it would be really nice to have a thumb. 
got one. God knew what you needed. He knew what you needed. And so he gave it to you. And in the same way, in the same way, he has given to the church what she needs. The church knew that we needed someone with unlimited time. And so he gave us Richard. It's a great gift that we have there. He knew that we needed someone with great organizational skills to run a food pantry. So we have that beautiful lady over there. He knew that we needed an Awanas director, and so he gave us two to help carry that burden. To each of the ministries here, he has provided what what we need to accomplish that which he has set before us. Even for the holes that we have right now. We need Sunday school teachers. We've talked about it for the last month, it feels like. We need Sunday school teachers for children. Someone here has been equipped for that. You may not feel like it, but he has put you here for a purpose. And when we don't accomplish that purpose together, we're missing something. So he gives us, he gives us gifts that we may serve the church, but he has also given another gift. It's interesting here that he talks about that he gave gifts to men, and then he just talks a little bit about the descension, and immediately after that he says this. Once he gets done with his parentheses, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He says that, Not only have we been equipped, not only does the body have the parts it needs, but I have also, God has also given us the gift of ministers. He's given ministers to the church as a gift. This is quite humbling, by the way. But he's given the ministers gifts, or as gifts to the church. Now, Certainly, we look through that list and we see things like apostles that was completed with the New Testament. That office no longer exists. But we go on to see evangelists. We understand that. Shepherds and teachers. We understand those roles. We're given as gifts that the church might accomplish her purpose. But what are they to do? They are to, as verse 12 says, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Notice here that he doesn't say that they are to do the ministry. Now certainly, we as fellow saints also have ministry to do. But he doesn't say that ministers do the ministry of the church. Rather, he says that ministers are to equip the saints to do the ministry. My job primarily is not to do the entire ministry of First Baptist Church Vandalia. I am not to accomplish the purpose on my own. I am to help prepare you to go out and to do the ministry. That's why we preach Sunday morning, so that you might be filled so that you can go out. That's why we do Sunday school. Sunday school isn't so that you can come in and learn more and just sit there. Rather, it is so that you can be filled with the knowledge of the Word of God so that then you can go out and be prepared for the week that is ahead of you, for the ministry that lies ahead of you. If we ever are led by the Lord to add another minister to the mix here, my prayer is is that we don't hire a guy just to do a job, but rather we hire 
a person that can come in and help equip you all, all of us, to do the ministry together. And I ask that you would pray for me in this area. It is not easy for me always to delegate. There are times that I just want to do things, just to get them done and see them done the way that I would like to see them done. I know none of you understand that at all. All of you are great delegators. But I would ask that you would, that you would pray that I would be a better equipper of the saints, that I would be a great cheerleader, that I would be a better delegator to say, God has put you here for this purpose. How can I make sure that happens? How can I help you? That God would work through me to encourage and to equip the saints. Second, we are to build for the building up of the body of Christ. We're to encourage. We're to come along and to strengthen. Ministers should be there when you are at your weakest Ministers should be there when you have doubts. Ministers should be there when you are suffering to come along and to encourage and to prop you up. We want to be here for you. As a church, we're here for each other in that way. Not only that, not only we were here to equip, not only here to build up the church, to encourage the church, but we are in it forever. He says there that we do this in verse 13 until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is both greatly encouraging that Paul says that that is the goal. It is also a little bit daunting to realize that on this side of heaven, it's never going to happen. My job never ends. We continue to grow and to mature together as a body of Christ forever until we reach heaven. This isn't a temporary gig. It's not a part-time thing. And I would ask that you pray for that as well. I was warned when I was, a, when I was being ordained that I needed to get a hobby that I really enjoyed. And I didn't understand that at the time, but I've grown to appreciate that saying. Because at times as a minister, you don't see fruit. You don't see accomplishment. In your job, my guess is there are things and things that you go, oh, we accomplished this this week, or we accomplished this this week. And there are times as a minister that I'll be real honest that you get to the end of your week and you go, man, I had some good meetings this week. I have no idea where we're at. but And it can be a little discouraging. Nothing that you all have done, nothing that is wrong. Just men like to accomplish things. So you go home and you destroy something just so you can fix it. It's like, yay, I did something this week. So I'd ask that you would join with me in prayer over that as well, that the Lord would remind me and keep my eyes focused on the task, on the task ahead. Paul gives us gifts. And he tells us, he reminds us here at the end of our passage, and we'll go through this quick. But he reminds us here at the end of the passage that he does this so that we may no longer be children. Verse 15 there, or sorry, 14. So that we may no longer be children. We are to grow up. We are to grow up. 
we can't stay children forever. Parents don't raise children hoping, oh man, I want to bottle feed this kid until he's 35. That's not the hope of a parent. Or at least I hope it's not. (laughs) The hope of a parent is that eventually that child will learn to enjoy and to digest real food. The hope of the parent is that someday they will be able to prepare their own food and appreciate new things on their own, to be able to digest those things and then be able to accomplish something, to be able to give back to society, to be an active member, to be fulfilled in that. Christ longs for no different for us. We should not just remain children. Salvation is a wonderful thing. But if we just sit there in the pew and say, hey, I'm not going to hell, and that's all we ever get out of our faith, we have missed much. We have missed much. Christ desires for us to grow. He desires for us not to be tossed to and fro, as Paul says here, by whatever, whatever new thing comes our way, but that we may know Christ, that we may know the depth of His love, that we may know the greatness of His wisdom, that we may be able to serve and be fulfilled through that service. We can't stay children forever. As we grow, we grow into Christ, Paul says. That we grow into the head, as he puts it. For that is where our power is. I was listening uh, to a sermon this week at the associational uh, meetings on Friday and Saturday. and He talked about how if we want to experience power, then we must be willing to surrender. If we want to experience power in our life, then we must be willing to surrender. And that's exactly what Christ calls us into. As we grow in Him, we surrender to Him. And through Him, we experience the power of Christ that changes lives. Notice there that it says that we're held together by the joints. For me, as I was reading this, I was like, man, that's a great description of ministers, isn't it? Like, we have no power on our own. The muscles are the what does things. The joints just help move things along. I have no power on my own. If you're expecting me to grow Vandalia by myself, if you're expecting me to make everything happy hunky-dory here by myself, then (laughs) yeah. The church is the muscle. I just connect people. Say, hey, have you met so-and-so? They'd be a great ministry partner for you. Hey, have you met such-and-such? Do you know about this situation? We grow into Christ together. Because as Paul says at the end of this passage, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do we want to be a healthy church? Do we want to be a church that makes disciples? Do we want to be a church that will carry on? Then we must all do our part. We must all serve together. We must do it in gentleness and humility. We must do it with patience, bearing with one another. But we must do it together. As I was listening to that sermon this week, he shared one more thing. He said, there is a time to take off the bib and put on the apron. There's a time 
to go from being served to being the server. And sometimes we have to serve people with some pretty dirty feet. But our Christ set the example. When he washed his disciples' feet, he said, Do you know what I have done? And they looked at him blankly. And he said, I have washed your feet. You call me Lord and teacher, and you are right to do so. And so if I am your Lord, remember that no servant, no one lower than their master can be above him. So you do what I do. You serve. I ask you this morning, are you still wearing a bib to church? Are you ready to put on an apron? Are you ready to find your place in this body? We can't do it without you. We won't grow the way we're supposed to. We won't accomplish what we're supposed to. Let me pray with you. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for everything you've given us. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you that you have called us by one salvation, by through Jesus Christ alone, that you took care of our deepest problem. We had broken the law. We had, we had offended you. We faced the consequences of that. And yet in your grace, you saved us. And you said, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to give you the best life possible. I want you to be fulfilled. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to have purpose. I want you to experience life with power. Father, we're thankful that you created the church to be a conduit of that. That as we join together with brothers and sisters who you have put in our lives for a reason, that we do this together. What a wonderful thing that is, is that when I am weak, that someone else is there to pick me up. That when someone else is weak, that you can use me and, and the life experiences that you've put me through and that I can help them through that time. Father, I pray. Lord, help us to desire as a church to put on the apron. To be servants as you were. To love as you loved. That we may see many come to know you as their Savior. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.